1: Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to The Future of Entrepreneurship, of Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: For those of you who remember the scary year 2017... It felt like the United States and North Korea were on the brink of war constantly. Well, we haven't quite gotten back to that point, but in the past few weeks, there's been a dramatic uptick and a scary uptick in tensions between North and South Korea. So, for example, North Korea blew up, and I mean this literally detonated, the de facto South Korean embassy in Pyongyang. Kim Jong-un's sister, who's a very high-ranking official in the regime, threatened war with South Korea, a threat the North Korean government only recently walked back. It feels like the past few years of diplomacy, of attempted negotiations facilitated by the United States, has gone up in smoke. Today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we are going to explain how this happened and why it's happening. I'm Zach Beecham, here with Alex Ward. Jen Williams is out doing something i don't know vacation i think that's what it's called right vacation i
2: I believe it's a vacation and it is also her birthday week which she's very excited
0: about oh so worldly listeners please send jen emails wishing her happy birthday uh hopefully she's not paying attention and this will come as a surprise for her um but if she does hear it jen and you get a deluge of emails to your inbox that say happy birthday uh well don't be surprised i hope you are surprised um Anyway, uh, I'm coming to you from a different place, a undisclosed location where I'm sort of on vacation, but I'm working, obviously, uh, in, in Alex's home state of Massachusetts. So Woo-hoo! he's jealous. Very jealous. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess we should uh, we, we should talk about North Korea, right? Like that that's why we're here today.
2: I think that's why we should do it. Let's do it. I mean, you mentioned that uh, diplomacy is going up in smoke. It was a perfect encapsulation because it
0: literally has gone up in smoke. <laughs> I find it really striking that North Korea blew up the South Korean embassy. Now, this happened what at the time we're recording, two weeks ago, a week ago,
2: about a week ago, yeah, yeah.
0: Okay. So, this happened a week ago at the time that we're recording, and since then tensions have climbed down like only, only just a like a tad bit, right? We've gone from North Korea threatening war to saying, "Well, we're probably not going to attack you right now," but it's still clear that the peace process is foundered, right? And I think to understand this, um, Alex, we should go back. Oh, I don't know. Let's say to 2018, uh, where the year that Trump did all these diplomatic overtures to North Korea and eventually ended up meeting face-to-face with Kim Jong-un, the first meeting between a U.S. president and a North Korean leader.
2: Yeah, I mean, I remember how dramatic that scene was. So, so let me paint the picture for those who may not remember because you didn't follow it as closely, which is completely understandable. So as Zach rightly mentioned, no sitting North Korean leader and no sitting U.S. president had ever met um, one-on-one. And in Singapore— in 2018, Kim Jong-un and Trump actually had a summit, and the goal of the summit, basically, uh, you know, months after the fire and fury and the Olympics and, and, and all that, uh, was meant to set the pathway forward, to come to some sort of agreement, to make some sort of deal that would, on the in the U.S. mind, start the denuclearization process of North Korea— And in North Korea's mind, lift sanctions that the U.S. and a bunch of other countries had imposed on it uh, in order to get it to denuclearize. And by denuclearize, I literally meaning like dismantling the country's nuclear program and the missile program that helps deliver those bombs wherever they want to send them. What they signed, uh, known as the Singapore Declaration, is a pretty vague, toothless four-point plan. Um, which all you really need to know is that it mo- what it mostly says is, like, one of the goals is to improve ties between North Korea and South Korea. Another is to, you know, bring back the remains of uh, U.S. troops that are still on the Korean Peninsula after the Korean War. Today's as we're recording, is the 70th anniversary of the start of that war. And then, uh, but the main point that, of course, Trump was looking for was the denuclearization piece. Now, I'll take an extra second to explain this because I think it's incredibly important.
0: Yeah, yeah, because the term means two different things to the different sides. That's that's the key point.
2: Exactly. So what the actual agreement says is the phrase denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Now, for the U.S. side, we see that as, okay, that means they're going to dismantle the program, they're going to get rid of their stuff, we have to work our way to that end. The North Koreans see that phrase very differently. That phrase means that there's just like no American nuclear support for South Korea, that there is no uh, more American military backing of North Korea's, um, you know, biggest enemy, South Korea. And so there's this thing called the nuclear umbrella, which basically countries that don't have nuclear weapons are protected by our nuclear weapons. Um, South Korea benefits from that greatly. It is part of the reason why North Korea struggles to invade South Korea again. Um, And so... Granted, and it's, it should be noted, like we make a lot of uh, a hay of these differences. Both sides know where they really stand despite this. But what's clear is what Kim Jong-un and Trump signed was the North Korean understanding of this, right? So whether or not we know sort of like where we each other are on on the, you know, on the terminology, Trump signed the North Korean terminology, and that's a big deal. And I can go into more history, but the uh, one sort of major encapsulation is what they signed in Singapore was a lot less specific and was way more vague than previous US North Korean agreements. So in many experts' minds, what Trump did was really sow the seeds of failure right in Singapore.
0: Uh so, so I wanna I wanna dwell on this point a little bit, right? Because it's the the question is expectations management in this situation, right? What the US had and what the international community had wanted from North Korea in the past is Alex suggested getting rid of its nuclear program, but not ending the U.S.-South Korea alliance, which is what you would need to do to end America's quote-unquote nuclear umbrella, the term that Alex just used. right You need to actually sever U.S. guarantees to protect and defend South Korea in the event of an attack, which could include nuclear retaliation. That's, that's the sort of meaning of the term. Um, by by resetting expectations, by adopting some of the North Korean language, even in a vague declaration of principles – this is where like diplomacy gets a little weird, tricky, and symbolic – you end up setting the North Korean expectations higher than they would be otherwise. You end up letting them think that they might get something more expansive – like real concessions on U.S.-South Korean military ties that they might not otherwise get. And that's where they, what they start to set is their aims of negotiations, or at least thinking it might be more possible than it would be in the past. And when their expectations are higher and then they're not met, well, then they start to see less value in the peace process. They start to, I don't, I don't know, is peace process the right word? I think peace process is sort of the right word. Like technically the Korean War has not ended.
2: Right. When, when in 1953, there was an armistice signed, not an end of war declaration. So the war technically 70 years on is ongoing, but there hasn't been fighting for decades.
0: Um, so, so in any event, this, this peace process, uh, which I, uh, you know, as somebody who spends a lot of time writing about Israel, Palestine, it's just like sort of what comes to my head whenever I'm talking about negotiations. But in this context, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, because it is really an effort to take the, the peninsula off of, perpetual war footing, right? And Singapore was Trump's attempt to do that. The problem is it set North North Korean expectations really high and also seemed to guarantee something that the US was never really prepared to give up.
2: Yeah. And I, I should say kind of two things at the outset. One is that, and I and I believe the Trump administration when they say this, that Kim did say um, actually both to South Korean president Moon Jae-in uh and to Trump administration officials that he was looking to dismantle his nuclear weaponry. That. You know, he wasn't his father or his grandfather. That he was a different kind of leader. He really wanted to bolster the country's economy. Now, whether or not he meant it is another thing. But whether he's but I do believe that he
0: said it. Um, the other thing. Oh, really? That that that's fascinating. I I want to talk about that. Before. I know you have another. No, thing. no, you no please want to go say, for it. But I'm like I'm very interested in that statement because to me, uh, Kim Jong Un's pattern of behavior has not been less hawkish than his father's. it's been consistently more brinksman there's been consistently more brinksmanship, more aggressiveness. I mean since the very beginning, right when early in his early early in Kim Jong-un's time as North Korean leader, uh, artillery attacked a South Korean ship, the Cheanan and sunk it and it was this really really serious escalation. A lot of people point to it as until 2017 uh, the closest the two sides had been to war, in in quite some time right and so that that sort of hawkish approach has been there from the beginning so to try to set himself up as a different kind of leader you know as one more interested in getting rid of his nuclear program despite the fact that missile tests uh, have spiked under his leadership like you can look at data on the amount of missile tests and it's really much much higher under Kim Jong Un like it it seems like he was trying to play the South Koreans and the Americans for idiots
2: Yeah, you could see it that way, Zach. Uh, Another way that some experts point out is that, look, Kim Jong-un came into power in his late 20s, early 30s, you know, depending on what you feel like his actual age is. Um, His father and grandfather before him did rule for quite some time, but they were older. Uh, And so Kim, in order to keep legitimacy uh, over time and, you know, maintain authority, he clearly saw that improving the country's economy would be like his main tool to do that. Um, granted, North Korea, very poor country, lots of problems. A lot of that has to do with the kleptocracy and, and, the, and the horrors of the actual state itself. But even so, that seemed, and he was very open about this. He's like, I have a dual track here. Like, I want to finish the nuclear program, right? Like, I want to prove that it works. And then I want to shift to the economy. And so part of the reason he ramped up the missiles, yes, it was part of the provocations with, with Trump, etc., but Kim had signaled that he was going to test ICBMs and he was going to test a whole bunch of things. And when he finally did the one um, – he tested the ICBM uh, intercontinental ballistic missile in November 2017, the one that theoretically could reach all of the United States, including, you know, the capital, New York City. Um, it went, like, much higher than the International Space Station. Like, that's how high it went. Um, that was his way of being, okay, I got it. I have the system. It's proven. It's done. Now I can shift to the economy. And the reason he started to open up, going to the Olympics, meeting with Trump, et cetera, was to get the sanctions that the U.S. had imposed for all those missile tests off as a way to improve the economy. So it depends how you see it. But that's um, – again, it would not surprise me that Kim said, oh, yeah, I'm totally willing to dismantle as a way to start those you know, sanctions talks.
0: Right, which is consistent with my theory that he was never actually willing to give up the nuclear weapons but was just playing somebody willing to do that on TV or in international negotiations, <laughs> in private as the case may be, in order to get sanctions relief and other North Korean uh, assets and goals, or, and other North Korean strategic objectives. But sorry, we have a narrative that we need to be talking about because we've been discussing what he was thinking in 2018, but we also need to uh, you know, go f- closer to what's happening right now. So what are the next steps in the collapse of this process that seemed, at least to some, somewhat promising in
2: 2018. Yeah, so, uh, and I'll make the the second point I was going to earlier, which is despite, and it will take us to this next step, which is, you know, despite the criticism and the rightful criticism of the Singapore Declaration, what it at least minimally did was set up a four-point plan that, like, the leaders could, you know, start to work with. Basically go, okay, if these are going to be, you know, steps one, two, three, four, we'll send it to our working groups, they'll come up with the right, you know, agreement on each, or on each step-by-step, and we'll move forward. Two things kind of happened in between. Um, One is, again, as we mentioned, there was a a big disagreement on the denuclearization piece. And then two is the U.S. basically went for complete denuclearization up front. They They looked for like a big bang deal where North Korea wanted to go steps one, two, three, four. They wanted to go step by step in order. There was a big disagreement within the U.S. on how to do that, which then took us to February 2019 in Hanoi, Vietnam, where Trump and Kim meet yet again Um, for their second summit. And this is where the real decline started to happen. The main point here in Hanoi, and and again, I I should say, usually summits between leaders are consecrations of deals that have already been agreed to, right? It's it's performative. Two leaders shake hands, they sign a piece of paper that's already been written, and they move on. Um, It turns out that Trump and Kim showed up to Hanoi without a deal in place. They were negotiating literally man-to-man uh, while they were in Hanoi. And the major sticking point, and I'll, and I'll go through this very quickly, is again, the Trump side with John Bolton by his side and and Mike Pompeo and others, um basically said, like, we will, you know give us all your nuclear weapons, give it to us, we'll dismantle it and your missiles, and we're done. And like we'll start moving forward. Kim Jong-un had kept repeating, like literally repeating almost robotically, people in the room told me, um, that it would just be what he called Yangbyan for sanctions. Yangbyan is the heart, if you will, or the old school heart of North Korea's nuclear program. So it's not nothing, but it's not everything because it's, you know, there's a lot more to that program. So basically Kim wanted, he was willing to trade, I will dismantle that for the for the removal of post, of 2016 forward sanctions on North Korea over the nuclear program. And I think the U.S. rightfully declined it. That's too big a price. Um, but Trump did show some flexibility in the room, apparently. He was like, okay, well, what if we do, you know, fewer sanctions for these this missiles, whatever. Um, Kim didn't buy it. So they both left empty-handed, embarrassed from this meeting. And the relationship really hadn't recovered since then.
0: So that's that's interesting. Um in the sense that kim seemed largely inflexible in terms of this demand that that adverb robotically really sticks in my head when you when you're describing the situation because it's exactly why you do the lower level diplomacy beforehand right because you don't end up in a situation where it's clear that leaders end up getting uh Embarrassed functionally in public or in some kind of sit down negotiated, unable to make progress because you don't understand what their side wants and what you're willing to give, like whether or not there's any way for you to stage something that looks successful. Lower level diplomacy doesn't attract high levels of attention, right? It's not that you have a bunch of cameras there when there's, you know, an assistant secretary of state uh, on the phone or on Skype with <laughs> or Zoom. North Korean experts or Zoom, where we, we live on Zoom now. Um, you know, you don't have a ton of reporters or a bunch of photo ops or a way that creates like significant public image costs for the leaders when they fail, right? And there's uh, there's good reason to believe that this matters a lot, right? Especially uh, when you have two leaders who are demonstrably very concerned with their personal public image. North Korea, because Kim Jong-un is a personalist dictator who runs a government that uh, has created a cult of personality around him and Trump because that's what he wants the United States to be, and I'm kidding a little bit, but not exactly, right? Like there, there are some real, like a lot of Trump's political persona is built up around his his deal making abilities, his personal talents and self image, and so for leaders like that, um, the the scholarship on on the psychology of international relations would suggest that. Uh, it's really important that when they do high-level things, there at least be something that ends up getting signed or that they can brag or suggest as a success at the end of it. And that would, that's the key difference between the 2018 and 2019 situations. In 2018, this vague declaration is something that both sides could claim as a win or an accomplishment. But in 2019, uh, you don't have any of that. And as a result, you end up having what Alex described, where the process goes starts to go downhill. Um, but what I don't understand, or at least we haven't talked about yet more precisely, is how we got from, OK, an unsuccessful meeting to North Korea quite literally blowing up the South Korean, quote unquote, embassy in Pyongyang.
2: Yeah, so I, I just to quickly go back to Hanoi, because I think it leads to, to answering that question, is you need to understand that at Hanoi, both leaders really miscalculated with each other in pretty profound ways. Um, Trump thought he could just get into a room with Kim and hash out the nuclear deal of all nuclear deals. Um, granted, he also really wanted something because if you might remember right around that time was Michael Cohen's hearing. Um, and so Trump apparently the night before had been watching the hearing and he hadn't slept and, uh, so he like wanted to change the news cycle with some sort of deal. So he was really angling for something. Kim Jong-un believed and he bet his entire national strategy on it and getting in a room with Trump and getting him to basically lift the sanctions because he's an easy mark, uh, that failed and he had to take a really sad like 8 hour plus train ride home. <laughs> um so like you know he again like Trump bet his North Korea policy on this meeting, Kim bet his entire national strategy on it. So and and that and then this leads to you also need to remember that Kim was doing simultaneous negotiations with South Korea on improving inter-Korean relations and those are intricately linked with the US North Korea stuff. So if U.S.-North Korea talks couldn't improve, then North Korea and South Korean talks couldn't improve. And so we go from uh, Hanoi in 2019 to basically all year Kim saying, if we don't get a deal by the end of this year, I'm going to start being a bit more belligerent. Uh, I'm going to start, you know, no longer playing Mr. Nice Guy. And we should know that Kim did not test a nuclear weapon or a, or an ICBM all of 2019. And Trump was fine with that. He was like, you can test short-range missiles all you want, just not the big stuff. Um, We're in 2020. Everyone believed that missiles and bombs might start going off again. And instead, what Kim has done is basically start to tear down,
1: uh, literally,
2: the structures of the inter-Korean relations. And and the reason for that, and and to kind of wrap up here, um, is because it's easier to do that than mess with the U.S. And if South Korea, which desperately wants a deal with North Korea under the administration of Moon Jae-in. If the North Koreans can start to separate the South Koreans and the United States, then it will either kind of do one of two things. Put more pressure to get a deal actually signed, which Kim wants to lift the sanctions, or he harms that that U.S.-South Korean alliance. So either way, it's kind of a win-win for him. And so that's kind of where we get to this point where he's blowing up um, that uh, you know inter-Korean sort of diplomacy station or a de facto South Korean embassy in, in North Korea, if you will, um, threatening you know military action, trying to put troops back into the de- demilitarized zone, um, perhaps reigniting propaganda. like that's what we're getting that's what we're getting to, is that Kim is making a new sort of Hail Mary play to either sign a deal or ruin U.S South Korean ties.
0: That's the important thing, I think, to understand about the situation, that this is a strategy. It's not uh, random. It's not just acting out. It's not irrational. It's a very deliberate way of attempting to accomplish specific and concrete North Korean national security aims of getting a favorable deal or weakening the U.S.-South Korean alliance. Uh, North Korea was probably not about to attack South Korea, right? Like that— I don't I didn't see any evidence of that being the case the kind of troop deployments that would indicate an actual impending attack. What a threat of this sort does, right, is put pressure on the United States and South Korea to react in some way or figure out some response so they don't seem weak and don't invite further provocations. Uh and that f- basically puts the ball in their court in the way that Alex was describing forcing them to come up with a coordinated response especially at a time when Things are are difficult to coordinate in a world of the coronavirus pandemic, to put things mildly. And so you end up not with North Korea, you know, being on the verge of war, but of North Korea saying basically through over-the-top complex language, uh, you had better do something or we're going to start doing even more crazy stuff. Uh, crazy, like, like it's almost like a it's a performative kind of crazy, right? It's not actually crazy. It just seems crazy to – to outside observers.
2: You're totally right about the performative. I mean, uh, I'm sure we'll get into this a bit more, but what I think is interesting is that North Korea has used a kind of like hot and cold strategy a lot, good cop, bad cop. Uh, the the summary here is that Kim Yo-jung, Kim Jong-un's younger sister, is basically the number two person in North Korea right now, and she has been the one making the threats toward South Korea, calling the South Korean president, you know, disgusting, etc. Um, basically saying we're going to, you know, send more troops to the DMZ, we're going to restart propaganda, we're going to put leaflets in South Korea, like we're going to start ramping up tensions again and, and the North, and, and the Koreans between the two of them had agreed like we're going to start, you know, move away from over-militarizing that that border. So the reimposition of troops, et cetera, is a provocation. Of course, blowing up the inter-Korean liaison office is a provocation. And so all signs were like, hey, there's going to be the North Koreans basically reneging on every Korean deal here. And then Kim Jong-un comes in surprisingly this week and goes, no, 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 no. we're not going to do that. I'm going to reverse, like they came to me with a plan, we're not going to do that. And the reason to do it, again, it is performative. It has been totally planned, experts believe. Where Kim Yo-jung looks like the bad cop, Kim Jong-un comes in, is the good cop, looks reasonable, and that's supposed to make the South Koreans and Americans go, hmm, there is a deal to make still. He's not as bad as we think he is. Maybe we can uh, eventually do something. And of course, Kim wants that. He wants the South Koreans and the Americans to come, find a way to lift sanctions, find a way to improve his country's economy. It doesn't look like, though, that either side's going to fall for it at the moment.
0: Uh, so with that dissection of North Korea's hot and cold Katy Perry strategy, we're yeah. going to take a brief break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about sort of the big picture, like how to understand this dance that's been going on for you know the past four years between the US and North Korea.
1: You can find it on the PropG pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about rising tensions on the Korean Peninsula, a topic that I feel like we cover every uh, few months or so on Worldly. Uh, and you know, there's a reason for that, right? Is, as we were discussing at the very end of the last segment— North Korea's strategy is to provoke and step back, provoke and step back, see what it can get from provocation, see what it can get by being nice. And this has been a consistent pattern of the Kim regime, not just under Kim Jong-un, but also his father and so on. So the question is how to understand this dance, as at least as it surrounds and relates to the nuclear program, which is the central point of tensions right now. Uh, and you know, my basic sense of it And the conceptual toolbox that I reach for whenever I I think about this starts from the premise that North Korea is not going to give up its nuclear program, that that's not an attainable aim of U.S. and South Korean and international diplomacy. And the reason for that is that uh, nukes serve both rational strategic and rational regime legitimation goals for the North Korean government, by which I mean – It is a significant deterrent on a U.S. attack, especially when you're armed with intercontinental ballistic missiles that may or may not be able to reach major American cities. I say may or may not because we don't actually know how good they are. Uh, We just know the North Koreans have ones that, in theory, could go that far. Uh, Second, um, the nuclear program – and this is actually a pretty common feature of nuclear programs in different countries – they serve as a – A tool of national pride, right? A a way of rallying the citizenry uh, and the population in support of the regime by saying, look what we can do. Look at the feats of our power, our science, our our strength. Uh, We're one of the few countries that can wield the might of the atom, right? I don't know. That language is a little antiquated, but that kind of Argumentation, you've seen it. You see it in Iran, uh, or at least you did when the nuclear program was more in active development. Um, Now, who knows? Maybe they'll return to it as the deal continues to fall apart, um, especially if Trump gets a second term. But the point is, North Koreans don't need popular support in the sense of, of Kim Jong un not needing votes, but he does need to keep the population in line to prevent domestic unrest, which is always a concern of authoritarian regimes. And the nuclear program is a useful propaganda tool in doing that. And I think for those two reasons, both the strategic deterrent and um, the role in the regime's self-legitimation, to say nothing of the way that it factors into the ideology of the leadership themselves, what people actually believe about making North Korea strong, important, getting their own sense of pride in their government and regime – Uh, which is another factor that I don't even feel competent to assess because I haven't interviewed any high-ranking North Korean diplomatic officials. Uh, It it, it just strikes me that none of this is likely uh, – it strikes me that there is nothing that the United States and South Korea can offer that would be sufficient to get the North Koreans to back down from a program like this.
2: Yeah, I'm surprised you can't interview North Korean officials. They're so open to to interview. (laughs)
0: Um,
2: Look, I – I agree with you, ninety-eight percent on this, um, and the reason being is, is as you rightly noted, Kim Jong Un, uh, like his father, and grandfather before him, find the nuclear program not only to be essential to its propaganda but to regime survival. Right, like Kim Jong Un needs these weapons in order to make sure he doesn't die in an American attack. Um, and so when these conversations or these negotiations happen about dismantling North Korea's nuclear program, I think America's mistake right from the get-go is believing that somehow North Korea is going to shut it all down, that they're just going to walk away from the nuclear program um, and, and you know, things will be fine. And outside of just the regime survival and the propaganda, like, why would you get rid of a program that you've spent decades to build? Like, just, just on that alone, right? You, you have spent... T- countless millions and billions of dollars on this program. Tons of scientists have been working on it. You've spent decades to get to this point. Why would you get rid of it? Just on that alone, I, I find it odd. And yet, it has been American policy forever that that is the way we negotiate, that it starts from North Korea getting rid of the entirety of its program. That's always been sort of a, a America's mistake. Is there something we could offer to get them to there? I don't think so. I, other than um Basically, the U.S. renouncing its alliance with South Korea, removing, you know, tens of thousands of troops from from there and basically saying— and, and showing somehow that we would never defend South Korea in a war. Anything short of that, uh, we're, you know, North Korea's not going to get rid of its program. And even then, if we did all of that, which we would never do, um, I'm not even sure North Korea would still dismantle its program. So it, it is a faulty starting point that only the most hardline people, the John Boltons, the, the Mike Pompeos, and some people in the past, um, seem to hold. That there's this genuine belief that all it will take somehow is the right set of buttons pushed and North Korea will go, you're right. We don't
0: want these weapons anymore. But I, I don't want to let uh, non-hardliners off the hook here, right? This was also the premise of the Obama administration's approach. They sure. never attempted to say, "Okay, North Korea, we know you have these nuclear weapons, and we know you're not going to give them up." Here's a more intermediary approach, or at least they never publicly said that, right? It's the the public position of the United States has been since the origins of the North Korean nuclear program, since it was developed and made public was that North Korea must not be allowed to have a nuclear weapon, right? And this remained true when North Korea was testing weapons, when they were just developing and building up the infrastructure to build weapons. And now when the facts on the ground have changed so dramatically, it continues to be the same. And this has, I think, consistently in the Bush administration, in the Trump, in the Obama administration, and in the Trump administration, made it difficult for negotiations to continue or progress in any meaningful sense. And, and those three different American governments have tried different approaches, and different South Korean governments. Right? We we talk about the U.S. a lot, but South Korea is as important an actor in, in this particular drama. Um, you know, they they've also tried different approaches. And there's very little that one can do when a regime like North Korea's, which like I don't want to let them off the hook morally, right? Like the problem here is that you have a bad and and fundamentally evil government that is concerned that because it is bad and fundamentally evil, other people might not like it uh, continuing to exist and may attempt to overthrow it. And so it it pursues a strategy that assumes a hostile world when, you know – the the easiest way to not get invaded would be to stop acting like a destabilizing violent and terroristic regime the north korean government doesn't want to do that hence the impasse but under the assumptions that the north korean government is what it is uh i don't understand how anyone any a realistic or clear-eyed assessment of the situation could uh sustain what has been official us policy for for quite some time now
2: and, and let's also not let off the North Koreans off the hook in, in another sense, which is we have come to previous agreements with the North Koreans where it was just like, okay, we are going to, uh, you know, we will do inspections of these nuclear sites and you're going to stop producing more bombs and missiles or whatever and we're going to look at that and in exchange we'll give you some money or some food and, and aid. And the North Koreans have cheated. <laughs> like they have, yeah. you know, reneged on those deals. And so I, I am – somewhat sympathetic and i mean somewhat i mean like 1 2% sympathetic to the to the idea of like well when we've tried sort of smaller deals even then the north koreans cheat so we need to be sure that they get rid of their stuff like, completely before we move any, we move forward. And a lot of that has to do with just America's mentality of this issue. But again, a lot of it has to do with the way that North Korea has acted in previous deals, including with the Obama administration, uh, with the leap day uh, agreement, which was basically, like, aid for, uh, you know, stopping some weapons and whatever. And then, like, just weeks later, the North Koreans cheated. So uh, that was a failure, right? So, um, look, I, I get why then there is this sense of, well— if we can't trust the North Koreans to go step by step, to do little by little, then we have to kind of go for all or nothing. But even then, uh, but all or nothing we know is not going to work. So it seems to me that the, the simplest explanation, or at least, and by being simplest, <laughs> simplest may be wrong, but the correct course is, all right, we have to find the right amount of, of, of leverage if we can um, in sort of for a smaller deal. Uh, and there was great, and and I should say, one of the reasons for so much promise in this moment was because you had never really seen a triangulation of the U.S., South Korean, and North Korean leadership as we're seeing now. I mean, Kim Jong-un clearly willing to go outside and negotiate. Trump, more than any other American president, willing to do diplomacy with North Korea. And South Korea, desperate uh, under Moon Jae-in to somehow improve Korean ties. And usually there's been a mismatch in leadership like there was conservative government government in South Korea or a liberal one in the United States and you know in North Korea was what it was or vice versa and so this triangulation like it's going to be hard to ever have a moment like this again which is why there was so much hope in this process and yet these faulty assumptions that have permeated throughout you know decades uh is what seems to have uh, ultimately thwarted the this push
0: right i think the the upshot of this analysis is that barring some kind of of over-aggressive U.S. response, we're not likely to return to the 2017 type provocation and really like real fears of war. Uh, in part because the U.S. has, at this point, the current U.S. administration has uh, staged its North Korea policy on the president's ability to talk to Kim Jong-un. And so to return to the days of, of fire and fury and brinksmanship and so on uh, would be essentially an announcement of failure. And of this approach, Alex, that you were just talking about, and that's not something that the U.S. government is going to want to do in an election year. It seems most likely. Of course, you should never speak in in permanent loud declarative sentences about what the Trump administration will do, uh, or the North Koreans, who are also, you know, maybe they push things too far, and some kind of there's some kind of response like the sinking of the Cheonan that I talked about in our, in our last section that requires some kind of more aggressive response. You never know, but the North Koreans don't want that. They don't want bring war. Right. They don't want to escalate to that point. So they, they want to do controlled escalations that provoke these kinds of concessions or prompt them. Uh but that that means going forward, like the peace process has failed, but nobody really wants to. to clear that it's failed, at least in the short term. So we'll, my sense of what is most likely, and I probably should not make predictions for all of the reasons that I literally just said, but my sense of what's likely is that we're, we'll go back to a, a kind of form of stasis where North Korea continues to do provocative things that are intentionally designed to grab attention and uh, create a sense of insecurity in South Korea and the United States. But not actually uh, attempt to escalate beyond a, a very limited sort of point, like threaten war, but don't do things that actually indicate the threat is serious, so to speak. At least that's my read of what what's likely to happen going forward. Despite you know these these really provocative steps, North Korea can do things like killing South Korean soldiers that it has done in the past that are much much more escalatory than what we've seen in the past few weeks.
2: Yeah, I think uh, this year, what we should expect from North Korea, and uh, you know, the perils of prediction are what they are. But um, I, I would say the the expert assessment so uh, to date is basically that Kim will do everything short of an ICBM test and a nuclear test because those are Trump's red lines. Um, but he can do anything else. He can do short range tests. He can do he can do the provocations with South Korea. Trump, in his mind, as long as he has that sort of opening to meet with Kim when he wants um then i think he's fine with the way things kind of go as long as they don't pass those red lines and in a way he's kind of right because it's not so bad to have a, an outlet or at least a policy way of making sure that like the threats of nuclear war of 2017 don't happen again anything short of that sounds pretty good um granted you know that's we're in the land of bad options here um now if you see kim jong un doing an icbm test or nuclear test then we know things are going badly but I should say the reason I don't think he'll cross that line is because there's an election soon and he does need to see if he's going to deal with Trump again or if he's going to deal with Joe Biden. And Biden has been very open about calling Kim Jong-un a dictator. He's not feeling in love with Kim Jong-un. Uh, and he's basically decided uh, or or Biden has said he would not meet with Kim uh, until like the end of an agreement. He would go back to that traditional working model way. And so I think Kim needs to keep his options open with with. Trump, And I think he also needs to keep his sort of powder dry because if Biden comes in and if there's one pattern in North Korea, it's that when there's a new American leader, tests start flying again. It's a way to provoke and to sort of literally test the, the new American president. And I think Kim is at least mentally preparing himself for going, if Biden wins, I no longer can do these summits. And I have to find maybe or I may have to go back to the old ways of doing things, which actually requires having enough missiles in his arsenal.
0: So what you're saying is that uh, Joe Biden really needs to be prepared for some malarkey from North Korea.
2: A lot of malarkey. <laughs> some intercontinental range malarkey. Okay.
0: Oh, Sorry, wait. I just really wanted to say the word malarkey. I think it's the funniest thing in the world. Intercontinental um, ballistic malarkey. That's malarkey. What I, that's what ICBM that's, stands for. You know what? I think that's what we should call the call the episode. <laughs> um <laughs> that that's gonna be that's gonna be it for us. Uh, I want to thank our producer Jackson Beerfelt uh, for all of his hard work. Again, welcome back to the Worldly team, and uh, we will talk to you all again next week. Later. Oh, but make sure, as always, to rate and subscribe and review Worldly wherever you get your pod.
2: Please do that for,
0: for Jen for her <laughs> birthday. For Jen, it's Jen's birthday present. Review Worldly for Jen's birthday. In fact, if you do, if you give us some five-star thing, leave a comment that says, this is Jen's birthday present. 100%. We We're going
2: to be looking for it.
1: <laughs> what does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself.